Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. This is a third of three episodes that just so happened to showcase filmmakers and organizations based in the Windy City, also known as Chicago. For our land acknowledgement, we respectfully recognize the Council of the Three Five, the Odawa, the Ojibwe, the Potawatomi Nations, and the Illinois Confederacy, the Peoria and Kaskaskia Nations, who have stewarded the land throughout generations. Many other nations, including the Miami, the Ho-Chunk, Minomini, the Fox, and Sauk peoples also call the Chicago region home. Indigenous people continue to live in this area and celebrate their traditional teachings and life ways. The What's Up With Docs podcast embraces our commitment to Indigenous rights, racial justice, and cultural equity, not only through the statement, but also in our programming and relationships with Indigenous communities. In this episode, I speak with DP and director Ashley O'Shea. We chat about the uniqueness of Chicago filmmakers, how she discovered her love of cinematography, her work on national brands and Surviving R. Kelly, and her feature film debut, Unapologetic, which centers queer Black women in the Black Lives Matter movement. Because we've got to show love for Chi-Town, and it's so important for Black folks to both stand in our righteous rage and joy, this week's song is Jamila Woods' Basquiat, featuring Saba. Here's our conversation, which was recorded in June 2021. We met for the first time, I believe, uh, in New Orleans. Were you part of Firelight's documentary yeah. lab? Okay, so that's, yeah, the treat down there, yeah. And I was working more with the Impact producers, but there were some sessions that we had together with the Impact people, with the documentary people. So I don't think we, we, we got a chance to like really sit down and chat in depth, but like that's where I first like remember meeting you and saw your, I think a, you screened a trailer. No, it was a terrible works in progress. Oh, okay, it was. <laughs> Not terrible, but I think that was the that was the retreat where they like had the fellows do their um, show their works in progress, and I I thought I was almost done with the film, of course, and it was just it wasn't bad. It was just yeah. <laughs> wait, wait. So talk about that. They were like, okay, you were like, okay, I finished, and they're like, no. Yeah, well, no, it was just like, I knew I wasn't finished because it wasn't a full, it wasn't the full film, but right. I had kind of tried to set, I, this is how I snuck into a lot of Rough Cut Labs. I would like have the first 40 minutes of the film cut and then I would just throw a bunch of scene selects at the end. So I think it just ended up being a really long, maybe not super, but it was like longer than a lot of other people in the group that have brought, cause some people brought demos, like trailers. And I was like, no, I'm trying to screen this whole thing. Um, and we got a lot of good feedback, but I, I'm more so thinking back, having finished the film now, thinking about that cut, I like absolutely know it wasn't close to me. <laughs> Cause that was 2017 or whatever you said, like that, yeah. yeah. We weren't even mm -hmm. done filming yet. I don't know, it's just crazy to think about now. Well, I mean, that's one thing that um, we really haven't talked in on about on the podcast uh, is that there are opportunities for filmmakers to screen their their works in progress either like through submitting to markets or if you're part of a cohort like you were part of the firelight documentary lab be able to screen um so um what were the, some of the things that you like what well, i want to ask like what were your expectations when you were going going into kind of screen your work in 
in progress? And then what was some of the feedback you got that really helped to kind of bring it, your project to the next level? I was just hoping for any type of advice to really just like guide my directorial vision. Uh, I did not, I had, before Unapologetic, I had directed a few shorts, but I was much more of a cinematographer. Uh, and even the work that I was doing while, you know, to sustain myself while I was filming Unapologetic was cinematography. So the the thought of like trying to cut together a 90 minute film um, with what I would say was very like, I didn't go through like a research and development period. I just started filming like at the different protests and events, had felt the connection as a director. And I knew that I could bring a really unique perspective um, as a fellow black woman. So I was really just needing advice on how to like cut together a piece that flows well, really from piece to piece to piece. And there were so many elements because we were like, we were focusing on Janae and Bella, like these two journeys that they were going on, but then there was this whole other, all everything that was happening in Chicago. Um, and, you know, back to me being a DP, it kind of, it kind of sometimes was detrimental because I had gone and filmed a lot of these protests and events and like, you know, I connected to what they were talking about and I felt like we should definitely give space to talk about this campaign that happened or this protest that happened. And, you know, it just got to a point where it's just too much for people to digest. So, um, so yeah, when I first, when I would say initially when I was going to those labs, I was, it was much more like, it wasn't a character driven story as much cause I was just trying to throw everything as much as I could in. Uh, so were yeah. you like, was your, was your work sample like just all protests? It, it wasn't all protests. Or, it just wasn't, we mm -hmm. didn't have enough of Janae and Bella's journeys to support. Yeah, yeah. there's their three lines. Yeah. Right. Or I was trying to quiet. force it certain ways that didn't make sense. And like, you know, it was like, I, I realized that the protests were not what was going to carry the film. It was like these two characters. Um, and once, once I, you know, realized that, you know, and, and uh, started to just like allow, allow the process to happen as it may, you know, and, and just allowing them to go through life. Like you, we couldn't, you know, it was something that was hard to force because you're like capturing this longitudinal journey. So I couldn't be like, you know, it was four and a half years when it was all said and done. But that was, when I started screening it, it was probably at like the two, two and a half year mark. 75% of their journeys of the films were sh was shot in like the last year of production. But that, you know, that's, that's how life goes. You can't... <laughs> Janae and Bella are like both like very uh very compelling characters and and engaged and um passionate and also funny too and I can't remember which one it, which one it was but um was it Janae I, I can't remember it was Janae or Bella but there was this this one scene where there one of them talk about their love life it was Bella and I knew you were about to say that yeah okay I guess so okay she was talking about dating well, men <laughs> yeah yeah so but talk talk about that like because yeah. like that's just a, it's a really but it's like it's kind of a slice of life but I, I could just so relate to that we were constantly talking about the film as from the perspective of these two black queer women but we were trying to figure out a way to not make it entirely about their loves love lives or who they're sleeping with because a lot of people's expectation when we said that was like they need to see the the queerness and it's just like okay they don't it's not like <laughs> they walk around like telling all their business and xyz you know there's a deeper kind of theme just about 
like how queerness is a part of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so we were just like, we don't need to like force it, but we did want to have these kind of moments where, you know, the audience could maybe relate to the, to the journeys that they were going on romantically. Right. Bella was talking to her friend about just about the difficulty of, of dating men, especially when you're in this organizing space where you're, you're really being radicalized on every, (laughs) every side of yourself. (laughs) And um, especially in Chicago where they had started to like center black women and queer folks and trans folks in the movement, you know, I think people were just having a lot of revelations about the misogyny, about misogyny in the movement, about misogyny in their own lives. I think even if you're not in an organizing space, like, like you said, a lot of women are just having that realization. And it's like, okay, I don't want to just be attracted to you physically. I want to also feel like I, you aren't going to be problematic or like, you know, harmful to me or to the family that we create, et cetera, et cetera. And so in that moment, she's kind of just grappling with that because she has this attraction to men and women and, and has dated both. But, you know, now that she's like Bella's, Bella's journey in the film is really interesting because she was being introduced into organizing like through her performance and was very much like, I think, unlearning a lot that she had learned um, in her upbringing. And so, you know, she was just at a point where she's like, how do I date men when I know that they're like, harming women when I know that they're misogynistic and and she's seeing it in the movement space she's seeing it in her home life um but then you're still attracted to them so it's just like <laughs> she's yeah. just grappling with that in that moment and we tried to throughout the film we tried to just kind of build build that in with both of them because I think a lot of people have this misunderstanding of organizers and, and thinking that they're like a monolith and like that all mm-hmm. they do is like strategize work 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 all the time and I'm like no they they like have other jobs they're going to school they're dating there's so much dating and organizing it's so messy (laughs) so no but also (laughs) it's like you know these are complete human beings and also when you're talking about dating and trying to be someone be with someone and build a life with someone particularly if you are an organizer like you need you want to have that space to come home to you know, where, where you can kind of be yourself and be real and be honest. And like, I'm a straight woman and like, I, and I'm a, I call myself identify as a radical womanist. And like, I grapple with the misogyny. It's like, I just don't have any patience for, for that. But it's generational, you know, so much of it's like hard to unpack with men in our current generations, because this is a result of how they've been brought up or the environments, you know, masculinity, that environment is entirely different than the femininity. So it's just like, out, even outside of their home lives, they're constantly being conditioned by these images of masculinity. And, you know, it's, it's just like, it's, it's a commendable act when I see men trying to un- unlearn that. Cause I know that it, that I, I know that's more difficult than women trying to unlearn, you know, unhealthy things. Cause I feel like we just get more grace and space to do that than men often that, that's, do. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm older, so maybe my, my patience is <laughs> lacking. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's something to think, it's us thinking about because like, I mean, you just want to feel safe with the person that you're with. Are you born and raised in Chicago? I'm from Indianapolis, actually. So um, how long have you been in Chi-Town? 
I've been in the Chicagoland area for 10 years. So if you talk to a Chicagoan, they don't consider the suburbs like a real part of Chicago. So um, <laughs> I, I came here because I went to Northwestern for undergrad. And that's like up in the, the northern burbs of, it's, just, it's literally just north of Chicago and Evanston. Um, and then, yeah, after I graduated, I, I basically moved down to the city and started unapologetic, but also started the rest of my, or, you know, trying to have a career. Did you go to school for film? Yeah, I went to film school. And you always wanted to be a DP, a cinematographer? So I was just talking about this actually because um, I was talking to a class at UC Berkeley. So I started making films or like learning about filmmaking as early as like the eighth grade. I had started to just like understand that there were people that were behind the scenes of like everything we were seeing on TV and in the theater. And my mom saw my like passion for that because I started making these like really jank home videos like music videos because my family had like a camcorder and everything like and and I you know back then it was like having a computer with like software on it was like a big deal so my mom put me in this like this uh kind of like a youth media training program in Indianapolis and uh we like worked on this team produced television show that like went on public access tv and that was when I really started to that's when I just learned kind of like all the different jobs um that there can be in media, although that was like much more like news leaning than than film. But um, but yeah, then I went to like film camp at Northwestern in high school. And um, I think around that time was when I realized that cinematography felt like what came most naturally to me. And um, I'm really like, I've always been interested in like process and like uh, technical things. So I really like how I really gravitated to cinematography because it's like a part of filmmaking where if you have a problem, there's like almost nine times out of 10, a very clear solution to fixing it versus like directing and screenwriting is like more, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's more right. vague and, and mm -hmm. you know, it's very like, it changes person to person. Um, so when I was, when I was at Northwestern, I, I took a lot of just like technical classes and like uh, and worked at like the equipment cage and was on like as soon as I got to campus I was like trying to be on the camera teams on all the sets. Um, yeah, but then in the middle of that I like took a documentary class and tried a documentary class and uh, then that that's how that started. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that documentary kind of sneaks up on you so it does yeah because like my entry into documentary because I can, I mean and I've told this story before when I moved to LA like I was came to get in the screenwriting I did the UCLA professional screenwriting program and everything and and wrote a couple of screenplays that got me a few meetings and stuff and like I was very much on that track and then one day a friend of mine told me, hey, you need to go to the Writers Guild to go to this meeting. As I said, what meeting? And she said, the Black Association of Documentary Filmmakers West. I was like, what? I said, well, I'm gonna be at the Writers Guild anyway. Bad. Read, read script. <laughs> yes, bad West. And so I'm gonna be there anyway, like on that day, read a script. So sometimes I would, you could, um, you could go to the Writers Guild and like read scripts there. You know, um, so, I, and I said, well, I'll be there anyway, you know, and that was it. Like I, I walked in the room and I was like, oh, what is this? And then yeah. um, they said, oh, we need a volunteer to write our newsletter. And I, some told me to raise my hand. And like, that's how I got, that's, that's how I got the documentaries. Like it yeah. all came from there. Yeah. So yeah, documentary has a way of kind of grabbing you.
Yeah. yeah, and I think like so the class was it was intro to doc production. So it was like part um part watching films and then you were like making a film. And at Northwestern you're on 10 week uh you're on, on quarter, so you only have 10 weeks to like make the whole Ooh, project. Okay. Ooh, damn, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um so yeah, I think I think what really it started to click for me because I, I made this film about like uh about campus ministries that were like ethnic specific so like there was a black campus ministry there was like a latino one and i was just investigating like uh the need for them or you know i was like in a in a part of my journey i had grown up catholic and i was like i was like <laughs> removing myself from that and but i still had this connection i wanted to explore and I remember I went and filmed the the Black Campus Ministry every Friday. They would have this like Bible study, and, and I never went because like when you're in Catholic church, you don't. It's very like by the script. Like anything that's like diving deep into something, I I don't remember really happening. You're not you're not studying it like, and I just I never you know I knew other people other people in in you know Baptist churches and other churches where that happened, and I was like, oh, I could never, I could never like you know, just feeling like I, I, was, I would be out of place. But I went and I filmed it. And, and then I, I started attending it for the rest of my time in Northwestern. But it's just like, I just love the documentary. You can start connecting to communities that you would have maybe never done before. And, um, you know, and also like I was able to, you know, help people see themselves in a way that you, you know, you just don't think about when there's not a camera there. Like, People will sometimes talk to you way more about what's going on if there's a camera in their face than if it's just person to person. So, so yeah, I rolled. I remember. I remember going to that Bible study, and I was like, "Wow, this is so cool!" I'm just like poking around and like seeing people go through this experience. Like one of the beautiful things about documentary, and actually, I was I was thinking about this this morning um, because I've I've had the opportunity over the past like 18 months to work. Um, pitching to work with um, filmmakers who based in Korea to help them with their pitching and um, and I'm learning like through the process of you know helping pe these people with their pitches I'm learning so much about you know South Korean society and culture and things that I didn't know about but, but in histories and like for example I mean a lot of people may not know but South Korea has this really um strong tradition and the people coming out to protest and like getting things done politically I mean they remove presidents you know <laughs> yeah and it's, it's it's just really uh it's really great and amazing I'm like oh I'm, okay this is something we could potentially like aspire to here in in the U.S. you know if we had like you know um but yeah I mean it just gives you an opportunity to, to look at things in a new light but also to see things that you think you know <laughs> or you think you know about through a different lens I'm like oh I haven't thought about it like that yeah, I tell people all the time I, I like DPing because it's a way to creep on people without seeming creepy. <laughs> Cause I love, I love, I just love um figuring out how people work. Like, you know, I know that there's just what you see on the surface isn't a, isn't even a modicum of the experience that they've gone through in their life and where they've come from. And I think that's why I even got to the point of like being like, okay, I'll direct unapologetic because I remember the first times the first few times I would film with Janae, I just had all these questions, like just from observing her mannerisms and like how she answered my questions and all these things that I got to because I was um, because I was DPing it. And I, I mean, I continue to, but yeah, I think um, 
I think DPs actually have a lot of uh, directorial tendencies because we have to like frame the shots and like, you know, figure out how to get the story, how to, how to communicate what the director is trying to do through how we're framing things. Um, and so I, that's why I'm kind of, now I'm finally leaning into this like director DP thing. Cause I think, you know, it can go hand in hand. It doesn't have to be such a hard line. And you know, everybody's hybrid now. So yeah, yeah every, everybody's hybrid <laughs> a multi hyphenate, as yeah. they say. Yeah, writer, director, right, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, So when you you were kind of entering the industry, like from the perspective of being this DP, but I want you to kind of talk about what are some of the differences, like when you have that DP hat on, and then when you have that director hat on. What I appreciate about DPing or maybe what why I gravitate to it more is because I'm following I'm usually like falling in line with somebody else's vision and you know I, I enjoy the opportunity to like hear what the director wants to uh, capture or portray and then I'm able to be like okay here are the tools that we can use to to be able to do that for, for you um, and then when we're actually like we're actually like uh, on set or like out filming a scene uh, it's just I just enjoy just like only having to focus on the job that I need to do uh, and that and, and that's what made it hard sometimes trying to do both on unapologetic because I'm trying to like make sure that the subjects feel like I'm communicating with them and that I'm present but that I also like don't mess up the shot um, which I do think is a it's like achievable like I didn't really um, get to that point till like the end of production, like being able to like, being able to like, when I'm coming onto a scene or coming to film with Janae or Bella, like not immediately jumping into filming, like taking the time to talk to them about where we're at, how their days are going, what, how they, like, I remember the scene in the film where Bella's at the barbecue, at the gang barbecue with her family. And I didn't know it was like a gang picnic on the, on the way there. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> but I not I not even in terms of like not danger necessarily, but like I um I picked Bella up and you know she that car ride gave me the time to be able to figure out, you know, what we were getting into. And you know, this a lot of people at the picnic she had grown up with, they were family, they you know, nobody was gonna mess with us, but um, you know, just understanding the flow of that. So then as the DP, now I can like think about what different moments in the scene I need to get uh, in order to make make it a scene. Um, and I would say within that, it was also really helpful to have, I think as a director, you have to uh, know who's on your team and like how they can best help you get to where you need to go. So like my producer, Morgan Elise Johnson was on that shoe with me. And we honestly actually didn't get to film that many scenes together because I was always, I was usually one woman banding it for a lot of right. things. For a long time. It was yeah. just you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but towards the end, you know, uh, when we had funding and like we were trying to, we were, Morgan was good at like keeping us very much on the track of like, this is what we need. Cause we were editing at that point. And so we were just like trying to fill in the gaps of like what was, what was missing in the story. So, so constantly throughout this, throughout the filming, she was just asking, okay, like, how do we make this a scene? How do we make this a scene? How do we make this a scene? And, you know, was going around talking to people, uh, listening to their perspectives and, and then, you know, comes into my ear and like tells me how we can make this scene. 
so so yeah it's it's like i i'm realizing like as a director it's it's and i mean all the filmmaking but it's just a very collaborative process and you can't like although i think it's valiant that i i worked a lot of years by myself i you know i often think about how it may have been different if i like i think of all the scenes that i did not need to shoot <laughs> <laughs> Like if you had that that producer there to say, right, hey. like we don't need we don't need another protest scene. We do not need to go to because I was just like whatever protest that first year, whatever event protest popped up, I was like I'm going to film it. And half of those, I mean, there's only like three protests in the film. I think there's not that many. So, so, so there, yeah. there are a whole lot of protests that we are that are oh, that were yeah. on the cutting the cutting room floor when you were initially filming was um Rami Emanuel still mayor of Chicago? He was, yes. Have you noticed a change? I probably knew, I know the answer to this. Um, now that, now that Lori Lightfoot is in, is in office. <laughs> I've noticed a change in the citizens of Chicago being more politically active because they are, they are tired of not knowing all of the terrible things that are going on in the city. So if anything, I think Lori Lightfoot being elected like the year before she was elected in 2019 and then you know last summer were all the uprisings around George Floyd and Breonna Taylor I think it brought a level of uh awareness to Chicagoans that you know may not have existed if I'm not saying I wanted Lori to do all the annoying things that she did or terrible things that she did but you know, I think um, I think the the communities here are just like very. They're not. They're staying tuned into what's happening um, in the mayor's office on in city council. You know, there are some uh, really progressive aldermen. Um, so Chicago's like a is divided into wards, and like you're you have like an aldermanic person that's over the ward basically. So there's been a lot of progressive, more progressive and radical, um, like automatic people that have come in. There was literally just a few days ago, like Lori got into a uh, yelling match with uh, a black honor woman because I don't know if you heard about this case of Anjanette Young. She was a, a woman um, whose house was raided by CPD and she was in, she was naked for the entire raid. It was, first of all, they weren't supposed to raid her house and then when they came in, she was naked and they, she was like for like most of the raid. And then finally they like gave her a towel. She was terrified. Of course they covered it up for like a year and then it came out and um, Lori just hasn't tried to press, like she hasn't like put any pressure on CPD for that situation on giving, like basically giving her a settlement or just something to like, you know, for, for what happened. And so this black older woman was pissed off at the city council meeting and got in Lori's face. <laughs> so it's interesting because you know Lori Lightfoot, she's a um, she's a queer black woman, and and your your film features like queer black women, but it's just kind of like testament that, to that saying, you know, not all my skin folk are my kin folk, you know. And I I know a lot of people were um, ex some people were excited when she got elected. A lot I was, of I, were. Yeah, and I was a little hesitant 
Um, yeah. Even though I don't know that much about Chicago politics, but just her affiliation with with the police. Exactly. So I was like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, she really. I mean, she got elected off of the progressive platform that young black organizers were really responsible for. But she, honestly, a lot of white liberals kind of gravitated to to her platform uh, because you know she was a black queer woman, and so she was she was really riding those coattails. A lot of a lot of the white LGBTQ community was supporting her. And and now you see a lot of people uh, remorseful for deciding to vote for her. Because <laughs> the young black people were like, she's done, this is her track record. Like she was head of the Chicago police board. She, she has been mishandling police cases for years and years. She used to be in the prosecutor's office. Like she is very integrated with the Chicago police department, which is like, a big issue in Chicago. So, I mean, they just didn't listen to to young black people like they never do. But like know. they never do. Yeah, I'm like <laughs> trying try to tell you. It's like hello. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is why people need to bring like some kind of crew. They need to bring some kind of at least critical analysis to like political political thought. Yeah, because you know, like Clarence Thomas is black. You know, I'm like, come on. Yeah, so it's Candace Owens, even though we may like probably throw her out of the club at some point. <laughs> but, but you know, I'm like, just because like that don't that don't mean nothing. Yeah, you know, that don't mean it. you you need to um you need okay look at that, but then you need to look at how they look at their policy, look how they are in the world. Well, one thing I wanted to ask too is um particularly about um Bella and Janae, have they? I mean, they're activists. Have they? considered potentially getting into political office like uh, i mean i know that i know they're really young but just considering we we'll always think millennials are young always, i don't know why i think millennials yeah like, i know we're, we're getting up there <laughs> i know well i'm 50 so like to be like everybody under 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 like 40 and under looks 12 to me I'm like, I'm like that point in my life you know I'm like why are you no it's the gen like zers now that are the baby you know? babies yeah, yeah exactly but the millennials y'all in your 30s now so yeah we're yeah. getting up there uh, yeah so it's like y'all y'all grown yeah. <laughs> um but um have they thought about like, getting into political office considering like, just what you talked about how they're more progressive like aldermen more but also i mean this i think this is happening across the country too because in new york i forget the the in the mayor's race uh the the yeah the the primary race or whatever there's like a socialist candidate who is like who is in the running and then you know san francisco has has elected a lot of, of socialist folks on the city council so like in parts pockets of the country there are seem to be um opportunities for progressives to get in on those like local city politics, which is where we where we can start to kind of like really make those changes. Yeah. So is that something they've um, considered at all? I think Janae's pathways is more aligned with like getting involved in policy work uh, because that's a lot of what she's been trying to do is figuring out how to merge everything that she's gained in academia, all the knowledge that she's gained in academia, how to merge that with like everything that she's experienced through her grassroots organizing. Um, so I know she just started a new job at like the National Justice Women's Institute or something. It's like some really dope organization uh, that's advocating for black women. And so, and even when she was in, um, when in Black Youth Project 100, you know, she helped author a couple of the policy agendas like the agenda to build black futures um, that, that they, took in, they took to Congress, to a lot of Congress people. 
Um, and then they also, they author, she helped author agenda about decriminalizing marijuana. I, mean, I think that'll be more of Janae's pathway. Um, and then Bella, <laughs> I mean, Bella at one point in the past year told me she wants to run for president, but you know, Bella, Bella will, I could see Bella in a public office. I, I don't want her to be president because there's way too much risk and she doesn't have a filter. But um, but no, I could definitely see her being like an older person um, or involved on the local level because she's, she's just so tapped in with the community and is one of the few people in organizing space that like actually like what they're organi organizing around, she has a lot of real life experience you know a lot of people will come from academia or you know not direct backgrounds in in oppressed communities uh even though they're black and so so yeah bella i i i you know who knows maybe in a few years we'll see her we'll see her out here but um but yeah they're they're uh they're both i think well equipped to just they just know what's going on um in in how to translate it to a policy level so Bella, Bella interviewed uh, Lori Lightfoot for, for uh, yeah, so my, my producer, Morgan, she has a publication called The Tribe, and Bella um, interviewed Lori. I was worried. I was like, sis, the sheets gonna, gonna ban you. <laughs> but no, she, she asked her hard questions, and she, you know, good. when she wrote the article, she had a lot of really good statistical backup uh, in response to, like, basically, Lori was just like, spouting lies and bella brought the receipts right exactly like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, i first saw uh, apologetic like um like i loved it in so many levels but also it brought up to me brought to mind me the um kambahi river collective and um and for those of you who aren't familiar with the kambahi river collective um they were a group of black queer women in the 1970s, um, who um, got together to create a womanist slash, I hesitate to use the word feminist um, um, agenda um, for, for basically that, that centered, um, centered Black women, uh, and particularly Black women of the working class. And it was founded, one of the founding members was um, Barbara Smith. And like I said, they were, um, they were around from 1974 to 1980. And, but their, one of their, um, their most notable um, statements was the Kambahi River Collective. Kambahi River, um, the, the Kambahi River Collective statement. And um, when I was watching your film, like the, I felt like um, Bella and Janae were like, these are like the granddaughters yeah. of these women. <laughs> yeah, they're like just carrying on, they're carrying on this like this incredible legacy, which um, for a lot of us like gave us like our, our feminist roots. And also the, the collective was really instrumental in forming the beginnings of what we now know as like intersectionality. The intersectional piece, uh, definitely. And I think a lot of, uh, Janae and Bella and the larger organizing community in Chicago um, are really a reflection of that work uh, and, and recognizing that you don't have to just show up with one part of your identity in order to, to be able to, to fight for your community. Um, and, and that was something that for a long time in Chicago um, wasn't being centered. And so, you know, that's why that's why I didn't have a research and development period for my film, because 
by the time when when I started filming in 2015, you know, BYP 100, um, Let Us Breathe, Asada's Daughters, all of these young Black organizations in Chicago were recentering the perspective, these intersectional uh, perspectives. And uh, it was just remarkable the work that they were, they were, um, they were getting done. And, and it was just like proving the point that if you have an intersectional approach and if you're centering, if you're allowing people to show up as their full selves that, you know, we can all get to that point of freedom if we're not like sectioning off you know, these different identities. I actually recently committed, uh, completed this um, training on Thursday and Friday with Art Equity um, called um, Everyday Justice, Anti-Racism as Daily Practice. And it's primarily, it was a training for um, folks who work in organizations to actually train folks on how to be actively anti-racist. And one thing that Carmen, who I'm completely banking on Carmen's last name, so my apologies, Carmen, but who's a founder, one of the founders of Art Equity said, that it's impossible to separate these identities like this is this is who we are and it, it when she said that it really made me think about when um when uh, obama and hillary were running against each other uh, particularly during the primaries there this is before obama got the nomination um white women would ask me well who are you gonna pick and at the time i'm ashamed to say now that uh, I was going to vote for John Edwards. That's before he got caught in that hotel room. Yeah, but see, John Edwards, this is before he got caught in the hotel room and they figured out he had a little child and was cheating on his wife with cancer. But at that time, um, he was like the only like truly progressive candidate. Like who had a pro and who had a progressive record. I don't know where he he really messed up, but you know, I don't I don't know where he is now. But like he he ended up dropping out, having a drop out of the primary because of the scandal uh, right before the primary elections in Arizona. So I actually ended up choosing Obama, but uh, it, it really like angered me that these white women were like asking me this question, like I can like divide up these things. Particularly since like a lot of the racism I have experienced, particularly in the working world, in the nonprofit world, in the documentary world has been at the high hands of supposedly progressive white women can't separate these identities, but also can't be asked to. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm tired of that question. Don't, don't ask me that. I, my life is a merging of all of those experiences. So it just doesn't make, I think, I think we feel it a lot more as, as black women are just like women of color. And it's just because, you know, a lot of our identities don't exist in a place of privilege. So like we, we feel it like a lot more, we feel it twofold versus like if you're a white woman or, or a black man, you know, you have access to one point of privilege. Um, but I also think it's beautiful to be able to exist at that intersection because we see life in a way that is, you just, you're blinded to if you don't, if you don't have that identity. So it's also kind of offensive because it's like, I'm not, I don't want to extract this part of myself because I really enjoy it. It's a part of who I am. And, and um, yeah, that's why it was just so dope to see, um, to see that being centered in Chicago because um, there were a lot of people opposed to it and who had opinions about young black women or queer folks, non-binary folks, like being at the center you know, there was still a lot of misogyny and other things that happened within within those organizations and then also outside of that from the old guard or what have you. So just the fact that, you know, I'm pretty sure 
most of them now, most of the orgs now are at least five years old. But I, you know, there were times where I was like, I don't know how y'all gonna make it to five years because these people out here are wild. And and then it, it starts to, it started to just wear on people. And, um, you know, if you don't feel supported in that approach, then you don't want to keep going back over and over again. And then that's how, that's how we start to get these cycles of, of, uh, community organizing uh and and I, that's that was one thing with unapologetic i was hoping all right continue to hope like helps create sustainability that people can see like we just it keeps happening the same things keep happening over and over again just in different ways but i was reading uh ella baker the book about her that that barbara ramsby wrote uh, as part of like my research my post film and research for the film yeah <laughs> <laughs> post-research versus pre-research. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, no, like, you know, Ella Baker was basically like at some point MLK's right-hand woman and was very, she was kind of like the birth mother of this idea of, of grassroots political organizing. And a lot of what would make her move out of places or move to new organizations or leave certain organizations, I would be reading the book and I'd be like, this is exactly what happened at this organization in 2016. Because of the misogyny. Yeah, or just 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 different infighting, like all, all these different things, you know, people not letting their egos get out of the way, not actually like not allowing um, those that are the closest to the issue be the ones that are creating the solutions versus, like I said, a lot of folks from academia, a lot of people with these like political backgrounds just coming in and saying what they think is best. And so, um, so yeah, I hope that the film can kind of serve as as a space for people to investigate that. And, um, you know, I've been telling people recently, like show up to the movement how you best can do it and not in a way that you have conceptualized for yourself. Because I, I, was, I was the academic person. So when I saw everything happening in Chicago, I was just like, I don't think my best place is like exactly like embedded in these organizations. It might be to to use my skills as a filmmaker to archive this moment. And, and that's what I know. And not try to, you know, not try to force it. Like a lot of people I end up, I think end up doing. How did you kind of consciously come to that idea that you were gonna take that approach? Particularly because like you're saying you coming from academia, but also because you're not from Chicago, even though like now you've been there 10 years. So how did you consciously say, you know, I'm gonna like um, embrace my, my identity as like a non-Chicagoan, non like non-community organizer to kind of like help, you know, to work with these people to enhance and amp amplify their message. Do you want the real answer? <laughs> yeah, girl, tell the truth, come on. Honestly, I think it was fear. I'm like, this is like unpacking with my therapist, but no, cause I just, I had the thought, the way my brain works is like, I had the thought and then it like spirals to like down the trail all the way back to like my childhood somehow. But anyway, um, I was always like, before I got to Northwestern, I was a very by the book type person. I was like the goody two shoes. I never, I have a smart mouth, but like it was only at home, at school. I was always trying to get the shade A's and follow the rules. And, you know, in high school, I think I started to realize like, okay, there's something a little wrong with the world. Cause I went to a predominantly white high school with like a lot of wealthy white kids. And so that's probably, and you know, I started going to diversity conferences and stuff and I started to be like, okay, something seems a little off with like what these white people are doing. Um, and then in college, I, I would say that maybe was the most I was involved with 
activism because that was when uh, Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown happened. And so, you know, the black community, I remember my freshman year, there was like a racist uh, party on campus. And I remember just in that moment, like trying to show up in the community, but like being so nervous. Cause I was just like, I don't want to get kicked out of school. They're like, I don't want to, you know, ruffle too many feathers. And I went, I wrote, I had like a little blog. I was really going through it, but, um, but yeah. So then when I, when it, when I was in Chicago about to start unapologetic, um, I think, I think that I just, I, there was still some fear there. I think I was still on my path of getting I think I still am on the path to get radicalized because I think a lot of people don't realize the weight of when you decide to put your body on the line. Like, that's why I literally look at a lot of people, the organizing community with just awe because even before last summer, when I think a lot of people experienced that, like they were, they had an action where they blocked a police conference and like, like tied themselves in the middle of one of the major streets of Chicago, just like, places where you can literally be harmed uh, and, and, or arrested or whatever it may be. And so I think a lot of it was fear. I think I just wasn't in a space. I think a lot of, I think this is a big issue with the black liberation movement in general. I think a lot of us aren't ready to put our bodies and minds on the line because we, we've reached a certain level of comfort because we live in a, <laughs> a capitalistic society. And I'll say that, like, I think I'm just not there yet. And um, so for me, I was just, but I, I just like, like I said, it was a moment and I just didn't want it to pass by without having contributed in some way. And so I think, I mean, who's to say if this was the safer option because it was still hard as fuck. <laughs> it maybe was a little bit easier on my mental health, but, um, but you know, I think that, um, I think, you know, it started out as like, it, it was rooted in that. And then I think it kind of progressed more to like, but no, this makes sense. Like this is, cause as I was starting to film and, and be in different communities, I was seeing that people weren't really, they weren't documenting their work like in a way that was like a long form. It was very immediate. And I'm just like, and you know, it's even hard now because like trying to move on to new projects cause I still want to be there to help people document. But like, there just aren't enough people in the community documenting it even if it's not being turned into like a feature-length film yeah for the like, purpose of, of an archive for history because exactly. this is part of history you exactly know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. exactly and I, th I think it's gotten a little better especially with you know smartphones and like uh there's there's like a couple production companies groups here that like just try to focus on that so that's it's, nice it's nice to see people like seeing media as a pathway to like being like you like people be calling me an activist I guess uh but you know it's a way to be an organizer activist mm -hmm. I just don't claim it because I'm like I've seen the work they do I'm like I don't do that but you know it's just like directing it doesn't have to look a certain way for that's true to claim that's it. true well I kind of want to go back to that fear piece and I just want to like thank oh, you God. for just being so <laughs> no but I just want to thank you for being so honest and so candid about that because I think that's a very that's a very real uh, fear that's actually it's rooted in um reality because there uh, those of us who have achieved a certain level of comfort like whatever it may be or uh, who have maybe learned to be comfortable with the uncomfortable because <laughs> because there's there there's that too um when we are called to like 
to step out and, and to speak up. Like there, there is a fear there because I mean, there's retaliation is real. You know, um, there are actual, there are like very um, real world consequences, but also that when you look at the history of particularly leaders and like the civil rights movement, um, you know, um, what, what I would say like by, by the 1970s, most of the major civil rights leaders were either um, dead or imprisoned or in, ex or in exile. You know, so I mean, I just want to acknowledge that um, that this fear is not baseless, but also like we cannot overcome our fears until we like look look at them in, in the face, you know, and um, analyze them for what they are. So I, I just wanted to to say that. Yeah, I think I sometimes downplay the significance of what I did do because it is like I have seen the film when it connects to like directly to community organizers and just like because I think for so long we were really worried that we we couldn't give due justice to the whole community because it's like if we tried to capture everyone and everything it just wasn't going to be a digestible film it was going to be like three hours and no one would like it um but you know I've, I've seen a lot of people that like even if they can't relate to every piece of Janae or Bella's story they see themselves in a certain part of it and um, especially for people that were that were um, present at the time that this was being like they were at a lot of the same protest events, whatever, you know, it's just like it's just like a remembrance for them that they they didn't, you know, in hindsight, they're like, oh, that was like a really significant thing or like even the drama, like they look back and they're like, it, it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't even necessary on that level. And, you know, I think I have seen it. Or maybe I have it, but I just I would hope that it's it's pushing someone to like keep sustaining. Like there's just certain people that have like talked about it, and I'm just like I have seen you got get beat down so bad by this, and now it like it seems like even if it was for those 90 minutes, like hopefully it's planting a seed that you'll like return to the work or just come back to it in a way that makes you that you're comfortable with. All right. Well, I kind of want to get into some of your um, other work that you've done, particularly um, some of your um, the work that you've done for national brands, um, because um, obviously on this on our show, we've had a lot of independent filmmakers, but, you know, a lot of people do other work to kind of sustain their independent filmmaking work. So um, I just wanted to kind of talk to you about some of the the um, ask you about some of the brands that you work with and like what you learn from those um, experiences and like the differences between like doing that work and in the commercial world and independent world and also how you got those gigs too no because that's important because you know a lot of people particularly um in these areas which we call quote unquote like where regional filmmakers are which i hate i hate first of all i hate that phrase regional filmmakers because we all live in regions yeah yeah, yeah. But, but, um, but i know what you mean not new yeah, york or LA. Not, yeah exactly <laughs> and i'm in la i'm like that's just stupid you know it's just but like um how do um how do people who aren't like in these like major quote unquote major media center i mean chicago's a major media center but anyway yeah let me, us, we're like right, we're like right, we're like the stepchild, like yeah, okay, right. us, the Bay, like Atlanta, <laughs> right. New Orleans, we're exactly. like the stepchildren. Exactly, like, like, oh, those other people. Right. Um, but like, how do you, particularly for folks who are not in like Hollywood or in New York, like uh, how can they get these types of gigs to kind of sustain sustain themselves so they can actually create maybe the independent work that they want to make? So 
how, how did you, you, cause you've done work for Nike and a few other things. Like, so how did you get those? First of all, you know, part of it honestly is because people from New York or LA comes to Chicago and they don't, um, they don't, they want to hire local talent. So like, yeah. So for me, my pathway to get to the point where I'm working with more brands was like, I was doing unapologetic, but then I was also freelancing as a DP. I was, I was working with a couple companies that would give me, give me like one-off gigs doing like more event stuff or like university presentations, like stuff that wasn't really enticing, but like helping me pay my bills and just like, you know, I was, it, you know, it was still, I was developing a skill. Um, and so, so um, I think maybe after one or two years, um, I, because of like my work with Kartemkwin and these different companies, a lot of times people would just like pass my name along as someone that could DP. At the time, I was not at the skill level I am at now. I don't know how I got these jobs, but you got to fake it till you make it. That's one tip I will give. Um, and so I, um, in Chicago, because we are a movie, a film city, we are a TV city, but we're still pretty small. So like, if you are in any of the, any part of the community and you know what you're doing within two to three years, you're going to rise to the top. Like it, it was actually less work than, I mean, not to say it wasn't hard, but like, I think, um, you, you just kind of start to become part of that circle of names that people know. And, and, um, a lot of the jobs that I get, I word of mouth or it's like, like I did a, I did a commercial shoot for Wilson earlier this year at Wilson tennis. And I got that because my homie, like she couldn't work on it. So she passed my name along. And then, you know, it's like, it just starts to matriculate from that. Um, also those data Brown girls doc mafia has got to be like, four jobs I'm not even gonna okay. lie because <laughs> I remember there was all uh, that drama on the da about the database and I was like I'm yeah. not even getting I'm not even getting any work and then I started getting work and I was like oh, okay maybe it's working <laughs> um, I know <laughs> yeah I've gotten I've gotten a few gigs off of there myself so yeah, yeah it's, it's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so it's it's um so, but I, I, I appreciate the moment that that happened though because I was in a place where I finally had bought my own camera um I you know a lot of it's really just like knowing who you'd like to work with because like I said like the New York or LA producers will come in and be like hey we we want you to DP do you also have suggestions for for gaffing or or sound or whatever it is and they'll just they just take you at your work your at your value because they don't know it's <laughs> like they ain't got no other choice um but no I love I love working on branded stuff like I think um again, I was saying this the other day, like it's important to flex all of your different types of muscles. And, you know, when I was an undergrad, I wasn't really outside of that class. I didn't really make documentaries. I was doing music videos or, or short scripted films. And so I've always still loved doing that type of, that type of work in like being able to have much more of a sense of control than you do, <laughs> than you do a documentary. Um, but now we're seeing this merging of the spaces, right? Where like, that's, I think that's the other thing is like brands are coming and they, when they see a doc DP, they're like, oh, they, cause people want this thing where it like feels like real life or, you know, they, <laughs> they, they need that docu style branded stuff. And so um, I think it's just like, helps me to keep my skills sharp, like really on a, a technical level that then I, I take a lot of those skills back to the documentary space. Um, and I, 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 I like it. I mean, I like that 
documentary cinematography is being held to like a higher standard now and like you know you could you could have the super expensive lenses I mean if you have the money but like you can you can like <laughs> like I just remember the way the way that I filmed Janae and Bella's interviews in Unapologetic I would do a thousand percent different now but that's because I've had all these years to build up to work in all these different spaces so basically, uh, before we do these interviews, Renell, I'll come up with interview questions and I'll go over with producer Renell. And I was looking through your bio, I said, girl, um, Ashley worked on Surviving R. Kelly. And she's like, and she's like, what? I said, we gotta ask about that. I said, I know. So girl, tell us about that. Oh my God, that was the, <laughs> that was the wildest call I've ever gotten in my life. I was literally, um, I've only, I only filmed two scenes within the whole series, but. So did you work on the, the first series? Or the, the first the and second? the second, the, yeah. The first and the second, okay, okay. Um, mm -hmm. One scene in each, but, uh, but yeah, they had already wrapped on all of the interviews and like the main stuff for the first, the first series. But then I kid you not, I was driving around looking at apartments and um, it was Mother's Day weekend. I don't know why I remember this, but I got a call from Charlene Carruthers, who does a lot of work. Um, she was the national director of BYP 100 and, and I got in to know her because of Unapologetic. She had gotten called by Dream Hampton because there was like an immediate thing happening in Chicago where uh, one of the girls that he was kidnapping basically, but her parents had gotten a tip that she might be, um, it's so nice to be able to talk about this now because I had to be so quiet about it when it was happening. Like I only told like my sister and I was under like a very strict NDA, like understandably so, but they had gotten a tip that one of the girls that their daughter might be at his studio, which was like, right oh, in so the West. this is a, the, so that the, 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 this is the mom and dad, they're like outside the studio. Throwing rocks in. at it. That was me. But I, when I got the call, I was like across town, I didn't own a camera at the time. And one of the companies I work with, luckily, they actually had an office in the West Loop, where it's, which is like around the corner from where they thought the daughter was. So we literally went, I like went, hurried up, got to call them, can I get a camera, so on and so forth. And so then me and I think he was a PA or something at the time, we literally went and staked out this, <laughs> this studio until, um, and her parents showed up and they were trying to basically get a wellness check because, you know, you can get those if, if you want to check on somebody. And um, we had, we were trying as much as possible to stay low key because we didn't want them to be able to, there's cameras on the building and then they had called the police, the CPD to try to get the wellness check. And so um, I was literally like in the car, like filming through a window, trying to make it look real. And then at some point I did. So then finally the cops came, they left, they came back. And it was very clear that the cops were in cahoots with R. Kelly's people somehow. But, um, but I got out the car with like, I, you know, it was like, I slowly started testing the waters to see, you know, how close I could get. And so there's like that final interaction where they were saying like, they had her on FaceTime and um, that was like counting as the wellness check. But then, you know, it was just like a moment, like the mom had a moment where it was just like, we came all the way up here. We can't, we don't know where she is. We don't know if she's safe. Like it was, it was a very, it was heavy. Just like seeing yeah. the family have to go through that. And like a lot of people have criticized their family because of how she got into the situation and everything like that. But yes, yeah, so this man is, is a predator. And it's, I, I, I 
really, I hate it when people do stuff like blame their parents or worse, like a lot of people are blaming the girls, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. And or, it's like well, they were, she was, I don't know, like 16, 17 at the time. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. Who knows what I was doing at 16, 17? Like, and if you're, yeah, and she was trying to become an artist and it's like, if, if this major R&B yeah. singer <laughs> tries to say he's going to put you on, like, you know, and obviously they were, um, yeah, it was just like they were ready to welcome her home at any point when she was ready. And so so that was the first season. And then the second one, um, I filmed with with the same with the dad and her younger brother actually on the day that he was uh arraigned or arrested on the federal charges. Um and they were trying to get into Trump Tower to see Azriel um, because he was, they had apartments there. So they were trying to sneak into Trump Tower to get her. It didn't work, obviously. But um, but yeah, I just filmed like a little on the fly. And like, it was, I think maybe a couple weeks later, she actually did end up going home to her family. But like, you know, they were back in Chicago again. Just, I was just like, it had been like a year and a half. And I was just like, Man, that's just like a father's love, cause like that is a long time, and they've spent a lot of money trying to trying to get her back. So the dad was, just, <laughs> the dad was just like, cause he had been in prison, and he was just like, he was like, yeah, he's going to federal prison now, ain't no more, cause like he could get around a lot of shit in Chicago, in the state prison, but federal, he was like, he was like them New York, <laughs> them New York people about to take care of him. I was like, okay. okay. They didn't put him in protective custody. He did. Something did happen with him. I mean, he's still in prison. Like, something did happen where he, he was in danger. Yeah. yeah okay. Sure I, don't, I, 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 don't, I don't mind that. I don't yeah. mind that. Because, see, I, I actually canceled R. Kelly, like, in the 90s. What, and what was, what was, you, no, were, you, because, were hip, you were hip to it, huh? Yeah, but no, because I, I, I actually, I live, okay, so I went to college in Minnesota, and then I lived in Chicago for a year. Um, and then I had to get out of there because like that place is cold. Y'all, y'all got some crazy ass winters. Uh, so, <laughs> and, I, and that's I was after four winters in Minnesota. So I was like, ooh, I, I can't do this. I need to, yeah, I need to go back south. I've been south. in Minnesota in the winter too, and it's not cute at all. No, but Chicago, it's the wind. It's the wind. You're right. It's the no, wind. Yeah. Like it just brings it to a whole nother level. Like it, it, it made it me think about into your soul. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Like there are moments I remember, I feel like I will never be warm again. You know, <laughs> like I, I just knew that to the core of my being. You know, that, that that's winter. what made the the mask. <laughs> that's what made the mask so great. Cause you like oh that's yeah 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 because it's yeah, a major yeah. key. Good, if you keep your face COVID. warm, the rest no, of your exactly. body is good. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know that was when like he was really big and everything. And then I think around that time, I mean. This er- the early nineties. Um, this when he was with Aaliyah. And oh, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. Like, and she I was, was like, like seventeen. That, and, I said, yeah. or younger. And yeah. I'm like, oh, and I heard on a rumor that said, no, I'm not. I like, I'm not listening to him. And then I remember a few years ago. This is for I'm surviving. R. Kelly came out. I was at the I was at the Apple Store buying like a new uh I need a new cord or something. And um, so I was in the, the you know back area where they have all the accessories. And they had like some of the Bose uh, radios playing. And then one of them started playing R. Kelly on the other side of the room. And the salesperson was helping on, on this other side of the room. I said, excuse me, I walked all the way over and um, hit skip and then walked back. <laughs> it's an store in Santa I Monica. I and like, I didn't even miss a beat. He's like, well, why'd you do that? I'm like, you don't let's know. Let's continue on. Right. Let's continue on. Like, let, just tell me with my purchase. Here's my card. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, they've been playing him on the freaking. I have serious. I'm in my car, and I swear within the past week they played him twice, and I'm just like, Bruh. I'm like, come on, stop. And yeah. and this and you know people, you know, and this is the thing. It's like, um, you know, I mean, it's I think it, it for some it can be good complicated. You know, artists like Michael Jackson and stuff like that. But you know, I'm thinking like I I'm not paying any money for R. Kelly because I'm not going to contribute to his like, and I didn't even know about the imprisonment. I was just like, ooh, I knew I knew about Leah and the rumors about the the girls. I'm like, okay, that, that's enough. But I mean, but also this speaks to the power of documentary and that that particular one because like it that when that series that first episode of that series hit, it shifted everything. Yeah. No, the state's attorney brought char- the state's attorney here, Kim Fox. That's she reopened the case against him after the film came out. And um, I remember even they were doing the like a preview screening in New York with a bunch of the people that had been in the film, and they had to they had to end it early because there was like a bomb threat or something. All oh, yeah, I, re- I remember seeing an interview with Dream Hampton when she t- talked about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it was just like a lot of um, it was. Yeah, it was like once you saw the web and how wide it went, yes. I think that's when people were like, okay, we can't, like, like if there's any, I've seen people still support a lot of other problematic artists, but most people I know have canceled R. Kelly completely, so it's just. And then another thing, too, like, about it, which, like, made one thing, they, they show this, you know, the Dave Chappelle skit, the, the piss on you. And like, I remember like when I came out, like I, I was laughing about that. And I was like, oh no, I shouldn't no, be no, laughing you, about no, that. No, yeah, then you yeah. hear the actual story, you're like, that's yeah. wow. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, it kind of, it makes you, I mean, the good, the wonderful thing about that is just how like, how, how like that, that project got him in jail. I mean, I think he's in other, cause I think he would still be doing what he's doing if, if, if it weren't for that. But also it made, made this kind of question about the, me, at least me kind of personally question the things that we kind of like laugh about that maybe we shouldn't laugh about you know that particularly because like these are like real people who have been impacted so mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah so thank you for your work on that yes yes because but also when that came out uh, both Renella and I we went down like the R. Kelly rabbit hole she went a little deeper because she was like spent a lot of time on YouTube as her best friend so she said, oh, you need to look at this, like, look at these interviews with some of the survivors on YouTube and stuff, and you know, so she, so she was really keeping up, so, uh, but yeah, but thank you for your, for your, for your work on that, because, like, it did, I, I mean, that absolutely contribute to, I mean, that saved lives, you know, definitely saved lives, so, um, and then hopeful, yeah, but also it just raised awareness about, you know, sexual abuse um, in, in the Black community, you know, you know, it, it really did. So people being to have those and how we hypersexualize young black girls, you know, and we don't let them, we don't let black teenage girls be teenage girls. You mentioned Cartinquin films, you know, and they're like an independent film powerhouse in, um, in Chicago. Um, and I wanted you to just kind of like talk a little bit about how um, participating in diverse voices and docs program, like, like help, help, like help you in, in your filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, David was the um, first crash course that I had in feature length doc filmmaking um, because I I had started Unapologetic while I was in the internship program at Cartemquin. And then 
like that was the fall and then that following winter I went straight into applied and got into their fellowship program and that was like the moment that I had decided to so like I definitely decided this is a future not a short um because I think I was you know I was playing it safe initially and that was what I was much more comfortable with but you know things were still happening on the scene and you know I was meeting all these other women so I was like okay I'll just I'll just apply see what happens um and then for the next six months it was really like a crash course in you know the production of a documentary how much money you would need to raise I think that was the first time I found out about like these grants and like how that can be a major source of funding um all the team that would need to be involved and you know at the time I was also still filming I was like in the midst of production and um you know I think that helped me just scale the project up and, and think about how to make it um, viable to become the, the project, the film that I wanted it to be. Um, I definitely thought I would be done by the end of, <laughs> by the end of it initially. Cause like, cause like we, we pitched it, we pitched to like a panel in June and then in I think October we had a, like a showcase or a graduation or something. And I was like, surely by the showcase, I'll like be done with the whole film. <laughs> that's how, well, that's, well, no, that's, go ahead. <laughs> was that before, but was that before you did the fire, got the fire? Yeah, light? that was before, that was okay, 2016. So, I didn't have any funding, Tony. I don't know what I was talking about. Because <laughs> we didn't, our first source of major funding was a crowd, was an Indiegogo that I did. But I did that like in the fall of 26, like that fall, I did like an $8,000 campaign. Um, and then uh, on a whim, I just applied to Firelight uh, because I knew one of the previous fellows and he was, he was, he was a contemporary filmmaker and really trying to support me. And I was like, Firelight is for like the good filmmakers. Like those are the, the. <laughs> that would be you. <laughs> well, I guess not, but at the time I was like 20, I was 23. I was a baby. Like I was just like, they're, there's, I was like, there's no way they're going to accept me into this elite because I've been I had known about Firelight mate probably since I graduated from college so so yeah I um so yeah after DBIT it was just like there were just a lot of reality checks along the way where I was realizing uh, like you this is what you really need like don't try to force things in a certain way because you're trying to rush it um and that funding piece was definitely a major struggle as I'm sure a lot of people have talked about um you just don't now that I'm at the end of it, I understand all the money it takes, but I just, it's really hard know. to know till it happens. Like, yeah. It, it may have been good that you didn't know, like I everything. It all the time. Right? <laughs> I said, I might have not done it. Because it's like, if somebody told you, oh, it's gonna cost this much to make the film. You're it's gonna take first, four and, like, and a half years. Yes, you're probably like, oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> but actually yeah. four and a half years is not a long time in the doc space. Like that. that's like, like how five I- Five is a default. Yes, yeah. So you're, you're like, you're still, you're, you did it quick-ish. I mean, yes. look, I couldn't, I had to, I had to get out of there. <laughs> right? <laughs> And talk about a Bay Area Video Coalition because they have worked with so many great, uh, great filmmakers. One of our first guests on our second episode, Emily Cohen Ivanis, she was a Bayvac fellow. So yeah, talk about like working with them. Yeah, I think Bayvac, I really appreciate it because um, they 
really allowed it to be like a filmmaker informed space because I did Bayback. It was after I had done Firelight. It was after I had done David and like a handful of other people used to joke that I like did all the labs and fellowships, but I was like, why not? (laughs) (laughs) The cohort is 10 first time filmmakers, uh, half from the Bay, half from the rest of the U.S. Um, And that was the first lab where I felt like they were really just allowing the filmmakers to, to like, give advice and and help one another, which I think a lot of times people discredit first time feature filmmakers because of, you know, because of stigma or whatever it may be, just like not thinking that we have all the tools that we need to be able to finish our projects. And while I think that's true in some aspects, you know, what I learned in Bayback is like, okay, I may not know this thing in one area, but like, I know a lot about these things in this other area. And so a lot of our workshops were just like, space for us to like share that knowledge with one another um because you know first time filmmakers range all the way from like straight out of school to to like people 50 60 you know whenever they decide to make a film and so i think you know just because you haven't made a feature-length film a lot of times people have worked in the media space for years and years um, or run production companies or whatever it is um so i really just enjoyed being able to share um I mean, we have people come in and stuff too that were more experienced, of course, but like, it was just nice to, that felt like the first really collaborative um, like fellowship space. And I think, you know, we created a really close bond because of that. Right, yeah. And like, those are people you could probably go back to, you know, potentially. Oh yeah, I bothered them all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I was just texting, I don't know if you know, Gabriela Garcia Pardo. She runs the video consortium in DC, but I was just, texting her the other day and she's working on someone else in our cohort. She's working on their film now. Two people in our, uh, Elizabeth Lowe and Dan Chin like put out a film together and I'm like, so yeah, we're definitely still still close and leaning on each other. Nico like had me DJ their son's uh, birthday party. Wait, you're a DJ? I didn't I know you were a DJ. On the side. <laughs> I, that's, those are my boards right there, right over here. But I haven't DJed. It was like a pandemic thing that became a thing, and then now life has happened again. Okay, but so you were doing you were doing like DJ nice. Like I did. I did Protasia Fridays. I did a firelight. I did a firelight. Uh, but y'all resilience thing. Like I just DJ. Next time there's a, a firelight party, need to get I know. you and Lloyd to Yeah, DJ no, Lloyd has yeah. seen the full evolution because I was always trying to talk to her for like when I was first first starting out. I was trying to get tips and tricks and like, yeah, she, yeah, she seen me <laughs> become a DJ. I was always at the firelight parties, like yelling at her at the booth, trying to tell her what to play. Now as a DJ, I realize how annoying requests are. So Loda, if you're listening, I'm sorry for all the requests that I put you away. Um, Unapologetic will, probably by the time this airing of this episode, will be coming out in theaters. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be at the Gene Siskel in Chicago on August 20th. Then we'll be in New York um, at Cinema Village on the 27th. And then in LA at the Limley, on uh labor day weekend september 3rd definitely come out and then we'll also be in regional markets too but those are like those are all going to be physical in person um and we'll also be broadcast on pbs bov on december 27th so if you want to keep up to with us um, we're on all social media at unapologetic doc doc and our website's unapologeticfilm.com
If you want to know more about me, you can follow me at Ashley O'Shea on most platforms. If you follow me on Twitter, I have no filter. So welcome. I, I hope that people keep taking the time for themselves because I feel like right now we're starting to get back into this really unhealthy capitalist culture, myself included. Although I'm really enjoying being back in filmmaking, I encourage people to not forget you know, everything that we, we lost a lot in 2020, but we also gained a lot. And so I hope that people continue to make space for themselves um, to, to take care of themselves and their community and their people. Cause at the end of the day, that's really what you're left with. So, um, so yeah, I hope that by August when this comes out, we're not all run to the ground, scratching and clawing at the walls, trying to, trying to, trying to take a nap. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, just, just keep taking care of yourselves and um, that thing will always be there when you're ready to get back to it. Just by pure chance, our interviews with the All Census Go team made up of Matt, Rishma, and Rebecca and filmmakers Rosita and Ashley just happened to be recorded back to back. After wrapping our interview with Ashley, our producer, Renell pointed out several things that were special about Chicago filmmakers. One, their commitment to building community and two, their commitment to fostering activism. Ashley reminds us all that wherever we are, we should do our part, whether we are out marching against injustice or the ones documenting and archiving those marches against injustice. And through her film, Unapologetic, she celebrates the power and the beauty that exists for all of us who choose to embrace all of our identities and live in that space of intersection. So please show up with everything that you are and make sure to see Unapologetic in theaters nationwide starting next week. Visit the website to get more info on how to get tickets. Thank you so much for listening today. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcast. Visit our website at whatsupw.com. That's whatsupw.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by me, Tony Bell, and produced by Renell Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up With Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast. <laughs>